evening, whatever time that may be, there should always be a breaking of the bread of life. We don't come to church necessarily for the purpose of fellowship, although that is an integral part of it. We come to the Lord's house in order that we may learn what the Lord has to say. So this, e uh, this Wednesday evening we will... Uh, we do have an annual Thanksgiving Vespers, so we encourage you to come and be with us at the 6.30 hour, and that uh, it's an opportunity that you have to share and give uh, witness to your faith and how the Lord has blessed you over this past year. So that's this coming Wednesday evening at the 6.30 hour. With that in mind, Brother Vance has been teaching us about assurance of our faith a marvelous study, and I would encourage you, if you haven't been here, haven't been able to be here, they should be on our website and on Sermon Audio. You need to go back and listen to them. They are very, very helpful. All of us as believers struggle from time to time with uh, assurance. Now, we shouldn't. It's sin to do that, but we do. And so he's been addressing that marvelous study. I encourage you to to listen to those if you haven't had chance to be here on Wednesday evening. I want to say from the bottom of my heart that I thank each and every one of you, and I pray for you often. And it is a privilege to, to have opportunity to be your pastor, to preach and teach the Word of God, to counsel, and all the wonderful things that go into being a pastor uh, in the house of the living God. There are a lot of ministers, but there are not many pastors or preachers today. We'll speak some, some about that this morning. So it's important. And um, I love you. I know that most of you love me. And pray. God has given us, has brought us through a, uh, a very trying time with uh, the pandemic, and he has allowed us, obviously, to worship, and many of you did have contracted COVID, and you've survived, and so we praise the Lord for him bringing you through, but there is much more to the Christian life than being physically whole, and we're going to see some of that this morning. So, for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you, along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. At the close of the service this morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And this is another opportunity for us to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for his willingness to become incarnate and then to die, to not only is he, as we learned last week, our great high priest, but he is likewise the sacrifice. And so we need to be humbly uh, receptive of receiving the Lord's Supper at the close of the service this morning. Now, we, we finished last Sunday morning, uh, verses 9 and 10. We're going to move now into verses 11 and 12. And this is another pivotal passage. Verses 4 through 10 uh, is a pivotal passage. Peter is changing from an overall doxology to the uh, privileges and the identification we have in the privileges that God has given us, and he defined those. Actually, let's read 9 through 12. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. That alone should teach us to be thankful. And this is a quote, verse 10, from the book of Hosea. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you, that they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day 
of visitation. So with privileges comes responsibility. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to receive the word. Open our ears to hear the word. Prepare our hands to act on the word and our feet to carry the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You and I are social creatures. Even those that consider themselves to be loners from time to time need to be with other people. We are created not only to have communion with each other, with our families, with our friends, with acquaintances, but we were primarily created to have fellowship with the Trinity. We lost that. We'll see some of that this morning. Have you ever been to a party or a social gathering and you were underdressed? Or have you ever been to a party or a social gathering and you were overdressed? When this happens, we feel out of place. And this is true not only for ladies, it's also true for men. We're very sensitive to our acceptance by other people. Are we as sensitive about our acceptance in the Lord Jesus Christ? Basically what Peter is saying here. We hate to be out of place. Yet, there are times when we have been out of place socially. And... We should be uncomfortable when we are out of place morally and spiritually, especially for those that claim to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. First slide, brother. So we're looking this morning, uh, this, this passage actually began back in verse 4 of chapter 2, and this begins, uh, again, another thought process. We're looking at honoring the cornerstone and his gospel. And, of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to focus on our bounty because we are, we are bountifully blessed. A hundred years, maybe 200 years ago, even kings, did not have the comforts that you and I have now. Kings could not adjust the thermostat. Kings could not eat as healthily. Kings did not have the physicians that you and I have today. And we take all of these for granted. Peter has two epistles that are contained here in the New Testament. We are in 1 Peter. They are pastoral epistles. In other words, they are written by Peter to comfort people, to encourage people, and yes, to challenge people. The Word of God always challenges us. These epistles speak to us about the promises of God in a sin-devastated world, and all we need to do is look, look about the world. We'll see some of that this morning. And these epistles are written to instruct us how we are to live for Jesus Christ within a world that's devastated by sin. The reason the world's devastated by sin is because of me, because of you. We're sinners needing to be born again. German philosopher by the name of uh, Haney said, you show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Alexander McLaren, a great Scottish preacher, in fact, I used his commentary uh, when we went through Genesis and using it now when we're going through, as we're going through Exodus on Sunday night. He wrote this, 
The world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. In fact, many believers today, for some, one reason or another, don't read the Bible. In fact, he said, they see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. Now, McLaren lived in the 19th century, so this quote is 150 or so years old. So imagine what this would mean today. It's been said that some of us speak so loudly about what we do that no one can hear what we say. Jesus had a word for this. He would call it hypocrisy. And yes, all of us from time to time are hypocrites, but there's good news. Jesus loves and saves hypocrites. We learned just a couple of weeks ago that God is for the losers, not for the winners. He's for losers. He's for zeros. Those are the people that he saves. And these are the ones that he calls out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, we've been reading a portion of this on Sunday morning or quoting a portion from the Sermon on the Mount, and he said later on in the passage, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Peter heard these words. Peter says almost exactly the same thing in verses 11 and 12, primarily verse 12. He says, we want you to live honorably among the Gentiles, among the pagans, that word's better translated pagans, that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, when you are slandered, and if you've lived a Christian life for any length of time, you've been slandered. You may not have been face to face, but certainly you've been slandered. Preachers, teachers that proclaim the word of God have been slandered. I was listening to a message this morning by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a message that he preached uh, 60 years ago now from this very passage, and he he went on to observe that there was a man in his congregation, he pastored Westminster Church in London for a number of years, and there was a man in his congregation that had been converted, converted from a life of uh, uh, alcohol excess, from a life of gambling, from a life of basically just not taking care of his family, and the Lord marvelously saved him as he did you and I. Every person that's ever been born again is marvelously saved and graciously saved. Whether it's a child or whether it was this man. And he told the story that the man after it had been converted, he'd, he'd lived a, a, a godly life for about five years. he but through the Spirit of God had put his life back together. He was taking care of his family. And he, after service, came to the pastor and said, Pastor, I need to talk with you. And so they went off to a, a separate room. And there, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, he says, uh, Brother, what's wrong? What's the problem? He says, I went home last Sunday morning after service, and my wife said she was leaving me. And she told me in no uncertain terms that she would prefer that I still drank, that I still didn't work, that I still didn't gamble, rather than come home from church and tell me about Jesus. Now that's sad, but that's an example of what living a believing life, how it may impact families. You see, women need to be saved too, not just men. And men need to be saved, not just women. And boys need to be born again, not just girls. And girls need to be born again, not just boys. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And Peter says a similar thing in these two verses. We're special. 
We're not special because of who we are. We're special because of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We're holy people. We're called to a worldview and a lifestyle that reflects Jesus by our good works. Not saved because of good works, but the impact of being born again means that we will produce good works. You're here this morning. That's a good work. That's counted to you and I as being service to the Lord. Next slide, if you would, brother. Peter's idea to our privileges in these verses 4 through 10, which we've just read, and now he's moving to define our responsibilities in our belief and behavior. In fact, this is going to run through verse 7 of chapter 3, and even in a broader extent to through almost the entire chapter 4, through verse 11 of chapter 4. So what he begins here in verse 11 of chapter 2 runs, this is a central portion of the epistle, and it runs for over two chapters. So he's taught us about doxology, and he reminds us yet again that we are God's own special people, that we are God's own possession. In fact, in Isaiah 43, you don't need to turn there this morning, we'll go, go to Uh, some other places, but there God speaks to Isaiah and says this, but now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine, God says, this people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. So Peter continues in that vein in verses 11 and 12. And as I reminded you when we started this morning, we're talking about bounty. And the bounty, the blessings that we receive, belongs to the cornerstone. It has been gifted to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last Sunday morning at some length. You and I belong to an alien king. We're going to expand on that here in just a moment. Jesus became incarnate and invaded this earth. That's alien to you and I. He was a sojourning high priest here for just a short period of time. Returned back to the right hand of his father and there we are told he makes intercession for us. Jesus transcends all of the rulers of this world. He's different. He's radical. He's gracious. You and I inevitably, because of our faith in Christ, experience a a partial alienation from this world, from our flesh. Speaks about that in verse 11. And obviously from the devil. Now Peter writes, notice what he says in verse 11, Beloved, he sometimes is translated friend. That's a stronger term than that. Beloved, I love you. I'm thankful for you. I beg you. I implore you. And he uses the phrase again as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts. Now he writes to aliens. He writes to sojourners. He writes to outcasts. He writes to pilgrims. And in the first century, they were accused of all manner of human degradation. The Romans especially slandered the believers as, and Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, wrote that they were loath for their vices. That's talking about Christian people. He wrote this around 100 A.D., about 40 years after Peter uh, wrote this epistle. Peter writing from Rome. And he, and then when uh, Rome burned, and we think that uh, Peter wrote first epistle of, of Peter about the time after Rome had been, uh, had been burned with fire. And Nero there said, I hate them for their abomination. And Tacitus again would write 
writing back to Nero, he says, they were hated not so much for the account of the arson. They were accused of setting fire to Rome, which they didn't. But they were hated not so much on the account of arson as for the hatred of the human race, thinking that Christians themselves hated those that were created in God's image. Another historian, and I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, said Christians adhered to a pernicious superstition. Now, this is the first century. This is going to come full circle as we see this morning as we move through the message. Next slide, if you would. Tacitus went on to charge that the hatred of the human race grew from Christians refusing to compromise their faith by worshiping the emperor or worshiping the household deities. They worshiped. Christ alone. Does this sound familiar? In these verses 11 through 17, it pivots again from our Christian identification, which is always in Christ, and the privileges that Jesus has given to us because we are born again, to our responsibility to live blameless and beautiful lives in a pagan culture. Now, in these two verses, we'll just look at verse 11 this morning, we need to focus on living a believing life. And then next Sunday, God willing, in verse 12, we need to focus on living a beautiful life, a bountiful life, a believing life, a beautiful life. And to live a believing life, we must know how to abstain from fleshly lust which war against our souls. And to live a beautiful life, we must conduct ourselves, our lives rather honorably with our good works, which will move even lost sinners to glorify God. Yes, they may slander us, but they should be our the light in our life should attract them not because of who we are but because Jesus himself set us aflame. So let's look at verse 11 this morning, living a believing life. A lady by the name of <clears throat> Sarah Smith who was a North American editor for the British Broadcasting Corporation wrote in the aftermath of the Roe v. Wade reversal, she wrote these words. America today feels like one country that contains two very separate nations inhabited by two tribes that have completely different values, beliefs, and goals. Now, she wrote, they've just moved further apart. This was written in June of this year. It speaks to the fact that there are those that claim Jesus Christ that do not abstain from fleshly lusts. Next slide, if you would. Believing people, and this is defined by the word of God. This is not my opinion. This is defined by the word of God. Peter has written about it here in these first two chapters. Believing people, those who claim Jesus, take the Bible seriously. It's not just a, a good old-fashioned tale from the good book. It's the Word of God. There are many good books. But this is the Word of God. And believing people are those who love and follow the Lord Jesus. Not only love him, but follow him. There's a difference. I love my dog, sort of, most of the time, but I don't follow him. Love Jesus and follow him. And as such, 
Peter writes here, I beg your sojourners and pilgrims. As such, we should always be aware that you and I are sojourners and exiles in a world that was at one time very familiar to us. Our home is not here. We are, as the old um, uh, as the old hymn says, we're just a passing through. Most of us have set down roots. Now think about this. What does it look like to live in a supposed Christian country, which we have never been, that doesn't like what Christians believe? You can't be, there are certain doctrines and teachings that you must believe in order to be Christian. And across this great land, although there are many that do believe, that's what we're talking about, living a believing life, the vast majority do not believe what's taught in the Bible. What does that mean to us that they don't like what we believe? Or we live in a country where most people don't like the way we think. And why is that? Because our worldview is based on the authority of the Word of God. The authority of the Word of God. Now we're going to look at three quotes here. One about 50 years ago. Francis Schaeffer. A remarkable book. And I read it a number of years ago. I reread portions of it. Francis Schaeffer, who is now with the Lord in 1976, wrote a book entitled How Then Shall We Live? Remarkable book. And in this book, he was very prescient. He was looking ahead and he imagined what might fill the vacuum that is lost, that, uh, that is left by the loss of Christian principles that's grounded in the culture in the educational systems 50 years ago and the moral life of the nation. You can go back and read this book and it's every bit as up to date today as it was then. Chuck Colson, 1999, after reading Schaefer's book, wrote a book entitled How Now shall we live? And in this book, he says, he observed the vacuum of Christian faith that Schaefer had said 20 years before. And he wrote, our minds are to be renewed by the truth of God that is given to us in the word of God. And therefore, we forsake either some kind of crazy optimism or dreadful pessimism by embracing what we might refer to as biblical realism. From this enthusiasm, and the word enthusiasm comes from a pagan word meaning basically to be entertained. to this dreadful depression and pessimism, this woe is me. And he says we're to filter all of this by looking at the word of God and realizing that what we're seeing is a sinful earth. One that we should abstain from fleshly lots. Next slide. Just this year, Carl Truman wrote a book entitled Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. And he wrote this. The era when Christians could disagree with the broader convictions of the secular world and yet still find themselves respected as decent members 
of society at large is coming to an end. If indeed it is not ended already. Many of us are now living as strangers in a strange new world. Three quotes from men over the past 50 years. So times have come full circle since Peter wrote his epistle. How were first century believers to counter their godless times? Because how they countered them is how you and I today counter them. Well, Peter says, in summary, he wrote that believers, go back and look at verse 22 of chapter 1. He said, believers have purified the souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, and that we are to love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's the first thing. We've been purified by the Word of God. Secondly, he says, verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, we are, well, look at verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So we've been purified by the word and we should desire the word. And thirdly, because of the chief cornerstone, and that's the passage that we've spent a great deal of time over the past few weeks, verses 4 through 10, we are living stones in a spiritual house. Look at verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So these three elements, purified by the word of God, born again basically, and that follows by obeying the truth, we then crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that we can continue to live in this vein and that we are a spiritual house that follows the, the stone which the builders cut out, the chief cornerstone. And now, Peter says, as aliens and strangers, abstain. How can you abstain? From purifying your souls. From craving pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. In 2,000 years, this hasn't changed. How do we counter the culture? That's how. What we find is that the Word of God is sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to it. It is sufficient. And now, in verses 11 and 12, he writes that these privileges... Aliens and strangers are to shoulder, well, because of these privileges, we're to shoulder the responsibility of living a blameless life, a believing life, by abstaining from sin, because there's a war that's going on inside of us. Next slide. Now, as you look at verse 11, and he uses this phrase a number of times in the first couple of chapters, uh, sojourners and pilgrims. He talks about pilgrims in, in chapter 1 as well. But I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 23 with me for a moment. Mike and I were talking this morning after the teaching in Sunday school. We're uh, wrapping up, he and Gordon are wrapping up the uh, book of Ezekiel, which we've been studying for almost three years the continuity of the Word of God. Well, let's look at some of this continuity this morning. Look at verse 1, chapter 23, Genesis. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kerjeth 
Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah actually and Abraham are going to be mentioned in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Abraham was from the land of the Ur of Chaldees, north of this particular land that he now was a sojourner in. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we won't do that this morning, but it mentions that Abraham was a sojourner and a foreigner and an alien in a land that God gave him, and he never witnessed the completion of the covenant that was made. So he says, I'm a foreigner, I'm a visitor. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And this is the cave of Machpelah. The first one buried there was his first wife, Sarah. So Peter uses the phrase aliens and strangers or sojourners, whatever your translation may have there. This draws readers into the continuity with Israel. Israel began its history as aliens in Egypt. And because of their disobedience, they lived much of their history as resident aliens and foreigners in exile. As believers, we're not any different. In fact, some of the commentaries would hearken you back, take you all the way back to Eden. When Adam and Eve were perfectly at ease in God's new world. A world of harmony shaped to be our home, the image bearer's home. That's changed, hasn't it? The harmony in nature and humanity before the fall. But since then, as Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, the world is red in tooth and claw. And we fight it every day. There is a war physically. There is a war emotionally. And there is a war spiritually. Because we know Things are not the way they should be. Because of our pilgrim status, Peter says, all true believers experience from time to time at least a partial alienation from our culture. This was true for the diaspora for the time that Peter wrote, and it's true today. And when we come to faith alone in Christ alone, we become citizens of the heavenly city. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We've put our roots down deeply here, have we not? And listen, I have too. But this world, as believers, is temporary. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. This is talking about Mount Sinai when the law was given. But look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are 
registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is our home. That's why we're aliens. That's why we are strangers. That's why we struggle. Do we feel alienated in our country? I think sometimes we do. Sometimes we ask ourselves the question, is this really my land? Is it really my home? Is this really my culture? Now to be sure, Jesus didn't die for the culture. He died for sinners to change them so that we would become aliens and strangers. Next slide. And so Peter is writing here to these individuals and he's writing to Flat Creek family. Same way. No different. He's writing that you and I evidence a believing life and that people could see the belief in our life because we abstain from lust that indeed war for our souls. The word abstain there means to keep away from, to avoid continually. There's an active portion to this word. Avoid continually the desires of the flesh. And he's not just speaking here of sexual desires. There are many, many more desires of the flesh. Pride is a desire of the flesh. Power is a desire of uh, a uh, uh, desire of the flesh, a, a longing for something that is uh, jealousy or envy is a desire of the flesh. All of these things. And it literally means don't let yourself indulge in these things at all. He began chapter 2 by saying a very similar thing. So when you read the Word of God, and this is one of the reasons that People don't like what we stand for. This is one of the reasons that people don't like what we think. In fact, people will tell you today what you think, won't they? Is this consistent with our culture's thoughts that feelings are morally neutral? And the culture thinks that anyone that speaks against these disparages anyone that declare that some feelings or desires are wrong. And so Peter says that such sinful desires wage war. And that word war there means to serve as a soldier. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're to put on the whole armor of God. Why is that? Because we're soldiers. It's the very nature of unredeemed flesh to war against the spiritual new life that God has placed in us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We went through this as we were preaching through the book of Romans, but it would, it's always good that we review again what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. There are no super-Christians, and Paul was not a super-Christian. Neither was Peter. They were sinners saved by grace. And he reminds us of this in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law. The law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, not my feelings, it's my thinking. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And lest we think that this was just unique to the writings of Peter and Paul, turn with me to James chapter 4.
Verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure? Peter says, abstain. James says, these wars come from your desire for pleasure, for comfort, that war in your members. You lust and do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. You fight and war, and yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask, and when you do, you ask amiss. You have an ulterior motive that you can consume what you ask for on pleasure. Wow. A believing life is one that struggles all the time. You remember 1996, September of 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act was passed and signed into law by President Clinton, September of 96. Just this week, the Respect for Marriage Act, attempting to codify um, gay marriage, which no doubt will be done. Voted in the U.S. Senate to advance before, uh, that should be January of 2023. Are we different? Next slide. Long quote from Alistair Begg. Some of you listen to him. You should listen to him. He's a wonderful man of God. We're suddenly using words that used to be clearly defined that have apparently lost all their definition. And suddenly a word like marriage or an institution like marriage understood throughout time is between one man and one woman. And this goes all the way back to pagan cultures. This is not new. To affirm that now is to be regarded as bigoted. When the Christian affirms these things, affirms the fact that society can only be strong and happy where the marriage bond is held in honor. Instead of people standing up and saying, well, that is so wonderful, it helps our nation. No, it's regarded as a threat to the well-being of the culture. That has actually decided that the self, the you, the me, the thinking, the feeling, the doing part of me is actually at the center of the moral universe. Young people, he goes on, are being told how you think and how you feel. And what you desire is the key to your entire existence. And you can make sense of yourself in that way. How I feel. Should I give in to the desires, to the pleasures James talking about, Peter's talking about, Paul's talking about, Jesus talked about. Either the Word of God is the Word of God or it's not. Next slide. Now, he quotes Carl Truman from this very book that I quoted from. And Truman goes on to say, if we are above all what we think, what we feel, or what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs these thoughts, these feelings, or these desires inhibit us as a people and present us from being the self that we're convinced that we are. You can't tell me who I am. That's, that's exactly right. I can't. But the Word of God can. No authority except for the book. Begg finishes. He says, the self, we are convinced that we are. Not the self that God has made us. How does he get there? Or how does it get there? Because of the autonomous self. I want to be free. Peter's going to talk about freedom in chapter 3. Jesus talked about freedom. Paul talked about freedom. And the freedoms that they talked about make us free indeed. Not contrived 
and contracted to our feelings. Now, he said there was a journal that he read for teenagers, and it just says in bold letters on the cover of that particular periodical, it said, I am awesome. And then if, he said, if you don't like that one, you can look across and see another one that says, I got this. I'm awesome, and I got this. I am whatever I say I am. Is that in line with the word? Despite biology, I am whatever I say I am. Despite biology, which is a science. The last time I checked, it was a science. despite sociology, and definitely despite any of that Bible stuff. Don't confuse me with the facts that my mind's already made, made up. Believers, now here's the thing, draw this to a close. We are at war with sin every day. I fight the sin in my members every day. And here's the other thing. So do unbelievers. What we believe as children of God becomes a responsibility for life. For life. If abortion is murder for you and I, it's, it's murder for others. If the kowtowing to the culture just this week the Mormon church, because the Mormon church is a cult anyway. They said, okay, we're going to, we'll codify gay marriage. And for years they fought against it. But now we, we want to bring everybody. And listen, no difference. No difference in homosexual sin and heterosexual sin. No difference. None. The scripture is very clear. Abstain from fleshly lust. Next slide. Peter knew. Then, and he wrote to us now, that human cultures are corrupt. But Peter never let the people he was writing to blame the culture for their problems. And we live in a blame-worthy society. Not my fault. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He may have tempted you, but he didn't make you do it the war that's in your members then. So let's close out with this, with this quote here. Here's the challenge that existed then and frankly exists now. This is for all of us that know Jesus as Savior. There is no social benefit now to being a Christian in North America. People don't go, oh, we've got some wonderful Christians here today. We thought we'd like to introduce you to them. No, they don't do that at all anymore. You may find it in church, but outside of church. And why is that? 
because there is a prevailing hostility against the teaching of the Bible. And therefore against those who will affirm the teaching of the Bible. And those who will eventually live it out. We're living in a culture that has dismissed, dismissed biblical Christianity. And here's the, here's the summary of this now. Superstitious belief that once were regarded as remote from our nation have now been imported to our nation. And I could go on and on and on. These beliefs are embraced as somehow or another now mainstream. And the problem that our culture has is that they believe Christianity to be responsible for superstitious beliefs. Beliefs that are now tied to a bygone age. You're old, preacher. An age of myths and an age of bigotry. We're considered bigots now. And sometimes we are. Sometimes we act like it. But abstaining from fleshly lust and living a believing life brings glory and honor to God the Father. We'll close with this this morning. When Robbie was undergoing her radiation for cancer treatment. She had a, a dear uh, nurse that assisted her at UVA. And this lady was about our age, perhaps a little younger, because I'm just about younger, older than anybody, everybody now except Willie. And uh, <clears throat> and we were talking, <coughs> waiting for the radiation oncologist to come in and the lady we were talking about, we were talking about abortion as a matter of fact and she said you know I, can't, I cannot make my uh, my position known here she said I made the statement once before in a group of other nurses, and one of the younger nurses said to me, I can't wait till you retire so we can get our way. That's a fleshly loss. That's power. We want the power. I'm thankful for America. I'm thankful I was born here. And God give me grace, perhaps I'll die here. But this world is not my home. I love it. Love my family, love y'all, but this world is not my home. I'm out of place. Are you out of place? And are you thankful that as a believer you're out of place? Father, into thy hands we commit the remainder of this service. We ask that you would use it by your power and for your glory. We pray that we would abstain from fleshly lusts because they war against the soul. Every person under the sound of my voice this morning, including this pastor, is a far greater sinner than we can ever imagine. And yet, we can call out to a Savior that is greater than all of our sin. And so I pray for those that may not know you today, either in this congregation or those that may be listening, that they would call out to you and ask that they be born again. And because of your love and faithfulness, you gift them with faith, they come to know Jesus alone as Savior. And they become like the rest of us that know you, aliens and strangers in a foreign land.
Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're just going to sing one verse of a closing hymn this morning. And what we just challenge you to do this morning is just to thank the Lord for the opportunity that you have to be in his house this morning and respond to the word of God. What number, Brother Mike? 614. 614.